Someone asked me uh, how my, my week was, and, and I said, well, it was busy. And then I started thinking back through it, and I said, man, it's, it's ver- been varied all week long. I get to spend time with Joe this week on Tuesday. I was out at Camp Jim doing some prep work for the workday. And by the way, Camp, uh, Camp Jim's workday yesterday was a huge success. Pointway, you did a really good job getting out there. We had a lot of folks from here. Uh, a lot of you are a little sore today, and uh, that's okay. It's, uh, it's a good thing. That's why I was standing up the whole time, because if I sat down, I might not get back up again, or someone have to come and give me a hand up. Um, but it was great yesterday. We had a, a fun time. Uh, a lot of work got done, and, and so thank you. Uh, it's good to support our local ministries here as well. And someone asked me that about Minnesota. What's one of the things that I noticed that are different? And it's that we have a lot of parachurch and, and organizations around us and a lot of churches as well, but we have a lot here in our area, and sometimes we forget and we take it for granted, but there's a lot of different things that we can be supporting and investing in, and uh, it's unique in many ways. And so thank you for doing that, and thank you for um, spending time. And then obviously with CMA, we go all the way to Germany and back, and so it's great how God is varied, uh, and there's people that are lost everywhere, and so we're always constantly reminded of that as well. Well, we are still in Samuel. We are still continuing on in our look at the life of Samuel, not the whole book of 1 Samuel. I was asked about that this morning earlier because I'm skipping a chapter next week, and they're like, what? You're skipping? Pastor Charlie, you never skip a chapter. Well, it's talking more about Saul and not Samuel, and so we've been looking through the life of Samuel, although we're going to be in chapter 13 today, um, but like I said, next week we'll jump to chapter 15. And as we've been studying Samuel, we've seen that even though he had humble beginnings and he started out uh, in a uh, not a traditional family in many ways, uh, we also saw that he was not raised by the, the perfect parents nor the perfect person to follow, Eli and his, free, his, uh, his two sons, the priest at the time. Uh, we watched that progression. We also watched Samuel rise to that judge of the area where he would go about and make decisions and help the people on a spiritual level, but also as the leader, right? He was a leader. There was no king until Saul. And then we saw that transformation of when Saul was raised up as the king and the people cried out for a king and they cried out for a king for a good reason, right? No right? It was for the wrong reason, right? Because they wanted to be like the other nations around them. And again, that was the, the wrong part, right? God was their leader. God was the one that should have been the one that they were focused on, but they wanted a king to be like the other nations. And God gave them what they asked for. Hence the question. We have to be careful what we ask for, right? Or I would even say we have to be careful when we don't get what we want, right? We, we can come, become disgruntled or we think that God doesn't know what he's doing at times. We would never say that, but really our actions kind of speak that. Like, well, God, why didn't you answer that prayer in this way? That's really, we're questioning God and why he's doing what he's doing. Um, not a good thing, not a good idea. And then last week, we looked at Samuel was coming to the end of his ministry, right? He does his farewell speech, and Samuel says, hey, has there anything been found against me, right? Have I cheated any of you? Have I, in my, my role as judge and leader, have I done anything wrong or corrupted? And the people answered no, right? 
before God, they answered, no, you've not cheated us, you've not been a bad leader, you've been a good leader, yet they still want a king. And so Samuel, you would think, well, that's his retirement speech, he's done, you know, that role of judge, he's the last judge, everything should be fine, they've got a king, and we shouldn't hear any more about Samuel, he should be off into retirement, right? No. Samuel just is relinquishing part of that role, that leadership role, to Saul. He's giving Saul the opportunity to be the leader, to be the king. And Saul gets that victory, that first Saul is not in. Things are starting off well. Don't misinterpret the, the scriptures that Saul is not a, a bad king from the start. He actually starts off fairly well, and he does well in the beginning, but we're going to see today he's going to start to falter. He's going to start to drift away, and that's where the problems arise. When he gets away, away from his looking towards a leader, and especially the spiritual leader in his life. And we'll see through, if you read or ever study the, the life of Saul, you'll see that over and over again. He either gets ahead of God or he's behind God, and that causes him problems in his leadership. And so that leads us up to where we are today. And so chapter 13, verse 1, we'll, we'll jump in this morning. And we're only going to do a few verses today, but it's important because it sets the stage for Saul's reign. It says here, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michamash and the, other, and the hill country at Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gilbath in, Beth, in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. All right, a couple of people here we don't know, right? Jonathan, who is, who is Jonathan here in the story? Well, Jonathan's actually Saul's son. Again, the timeline gets a little bit changed here. As we, we've been reading, it kind of goes quickly, and then it kind of spreads out again. And so he divides his army between himself and his son, but yet you notice there's not a lot of folks here, right? 2,000 and another 1,000, that's 3,000 if my math is correct, and that's not a lot for an army, and the Philistines are great. There, there's a large number of them on the doorstep. The, the Philistines are that constant thorn, right? We've read about them in the past, or back in earlier on, before even Saul was king, right? They were the ones that had come up and taken the Ark of the Covenant, and they had the battle of the true God, and the idol, the false god, the fish god, half fish, half man. That didn't work out so well. But Jonathan is leading part of this now, and Jonathan is, is rising, and I'm sure Saul, like any good father, wants his son to take over. His son's going to be the next one. He's, he's grooming him to be the next king. At least that's the plan from his standpoint. But that's not going to happen. But we'll see why in a little bit. So they're gathering up, they have their armies, they're ready, they're at the doorstep, they're ready to, uh, to, to attack and defend their area. And it says, Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land, and he said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious the Philistines, and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. So again, there's a battle that's starting to happen now, and it's starting to progress, and Jonathan kind of goes ahead a little bit and provokes them 
Someone has to start, right? And no war just starts by two guys sitting in a chair. Someone has to get up and actually start the, the progression, right? Has to get going, and there has to be two willing partners to fight. You that are married, you understand this probably pretty well, right? <laughs> or brothers, or sisters, or any relationship, right? It takes two to fight. If one of you does not fight, it's usually short and doesn't go very long, right? And so here, they're there, and, and so Jonathan provokes them. He attacks the outpost. And again, the outpost was actually on the inside of almost the Israel territory. It was very close. The Philistines kept squeezing them. In fact, they had rule over them um, in many ways on the outskirts. The border was not really controlled by them. The fact that it's an outpost is, is it's actually on the edge of the, their land. They, and so Israel is not trying to gain more land. They're just trying to hold on to what they have. Now, some authors have said that maybe Jonathan was, because of his youth, was looking for a fight, and so he picked it. But he would not have been able to do anything without Saul's whereabouts or him allowing that to do. But either way, a fight has ensued. And so now Saul says, uh-oh, we kicked the dog, now we got to do something. So he blows the horn and says, hey, we need, we need you to come. We need to gather you all here. We need to rally for this upcoming war. So as time goes on here, verse 5, it says, The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All right, we talked about there was 3,000, right? 3,000 in the army. Hopefully there's some more to come. But there alone, the Philistines have 3,000 chariots, right? Chariots were the, the modern, would be like the modern day equivalent of a tank. You know, it's, it's pretty hard for a, a foot soldier to, to rise up and to do much against a chariot. They would overtake very quickly. They could rip through an army or surround them very easily. Man on foot, horse doesn't work well. They're not even close. They're not even remotely able that Israel has any chance if the Philistines want to not only lose the border, but actually probably lose their land. And there's been a, a time that's been leading up to this in this battle. And, and so they're at this point, and now they're in trouble. Now they know that things are not going to go well. In verse 6, it says, When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that the army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and the pits and the cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Now, if you know anything about military and war and, and that other end of the border, when your men start hiding out in caves and start looking to run to the other end of the border, away from the fight, it's not a good situation, right? They're not setting up themselves very good right now. They sounded good at the beginning, right? They were right there to defend, and they're the ones that actually started the fight, but now they're realizing they're outnumbered. Notice this whole section, we haven't heard anything mentioned about God, right? Again, it's the downfall of Saul. He's looking at it from a humanistic standpoint. He's looking at it from what he sees or from his experience, and it's not very good at this point, right? He's forgotten who's the one that can take care of this. Who's the one that can fight this battle? God. 
They're going to need God in this situation. And as I've said over and over again, and it's a reminder, but that God is the one that's faithful even when we're unfaithful. And certainly here we're going to see the same thing. God's still going to take care of his people, but right now things don't look good. The circumstances are beyond the army, beyond their capabilities. And not only Saul, but his men are reacting the same way. Right? Saul's called them to, to come to the front lines, to come and help, and they're hiding and running away from him. Uh, it's a kind of indicative of his leadership at this point. Right? So even from that standpoint, he's not doing well. He's not doing well spiritually, but he's not even doing well as a commander, as a leader of the people. And so they are at a point of critical here. It says the situation, the situation is dire. Yet Saul remained at Gilgad, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. I didn't forget, right? I told you we were talking about Saul, but I didn't forget Samuel. There's, there's Samuel shows up here now in the, the text, and he's going to have this small role in this still there. Samuel is still around. Right? We, he gave his farewell speech, but he's been still there along, and he's been still advising Saul as a spiritual leader. Right? At this point, they're, they're friends. They're, they're still working together, and Samuel is advising Saul on what to do, and, and he tells him to wait seven days. And again, that's not easy to do, and certainly not easy to do when you see the enemy at hand and your troops are starting to walk out the back door. They're starting to, to scramble. They're starting to leave you. Says that he set the time by Samuel, but Samuel did not come till Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, and Saul offered them up, offered up the burnt offerings. Alright, here's where the problem begins, right? Saul gets impatient, right? He he listened to Samuel at least part way, at least the first part, right? To wait seven days, and then Samuel doesn't show up on time. He's a little bit late. Have we ever been late? Anyone? Yeah, right? I stand back there. I know who comes in late and who comes in on time. And, yeah. Quite often it's also the reason that PG and I take separate vehicles so that we're not both late at the same time. It happens, right? But again, this is a critical situation. This is where he needs Samuel to be on time and Samuel's late. And the pressure's mounted. And again, Saul's not functioning at the best here. But even in this, he says, well, if Samuel's not here, I can at least do it, right? I'll, I'll step into that role. I'll bring me the burnt offering. I'll, I'll offer it up. Well, again, he's overstepping his bounds, and he's overstepping even his role as king at this point. Now, technically, the king can do whatever he wants, but again, we're not talking about the worldly setting. We're talking about the spiritual realm. And Saul has gotten out of his lane, and he's into the offerings and shaky territory at best. And so he offers up the offerings, and he's not operating in that role. And now Samuel arrives. Verse 10. It's interesting. It says, just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. Uh-oh. I think of it like when I was a kid, dad's home, now I'm in trouble, right? You know, it's kind of the same way. Saul's like, oh, shoot, 
if I could have just waited a little bit longer. I mean, the, the process of the sacrifice was not long. So it's, it, we're talking here, he probably missed it. Some experts say between one and three hours was all that he was late, which, yes, seems like a lot, but in that day, things moved slow, and it's not like he could send him a text or send someone on ahead, right? So just as he's finishing, Samuel shows up, and you notice here, it also says that, that Saul went out to greet him, right? Like, uh-oh, someone, somehow I got back to him, or he could see Samuel, and he's like, uh-oh, I know I've messed up, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and try to preemptively, I'm going to go out and, and try to smooth this over. I think Saul already knew that he was in trouble. I think he already knew that he had overstepped his spiritual bounds, and now he's got to confront Samuel, right? He's got to find out, oh no, what, what's, what's next? What's the plan? He's not doing well under pressure. Can I also say that we have that same problem sometimes? We have that same issue? Uh, or maybe just me, and I quite often just preach to myself, and that's okay. But when we get squeezed, right, when we get under pressure, do we always act the best spiritually? No, no. So I, I can give Saul grace here. Uh, and, and again, it's no different in our own lives. Sometimes we get squeezed, right? And, and sometimes we do things that we shouldn't do in those situations, and so I can certainly have grace and, and apathy for Saul, but yet Saul should have known better. And even us as believers, we quite often know better, yet we still fall into temptation there, and we fall into to pray there. Look at Samuel's question. What have you done? Right? What have you done? If you've been a parent, you've asked your kid that question, I'm sure, at least not once, but a hundred times, right? What have you done? All right? Or do you know what you've done? Right? And we, we look for that answer, and again, we already know usually, we already have the answer of most parents, right? We have that eye in the back of our head and that sixth sense, or I used to tell my kids it's written on their foreheads, and I can read their foreheads. <laughs> Rachel still doesn't believe me, but she would fess up anyways. But, but Samuel knows, right? And the question's not because he really wants to know, but he wants to hear how Saul's going to explain it. Right? He's looking for the response. Same thing as a parent, right? We want to hear what their response is. Do they, do they have an understanding? Do they know what they're saying? Right? Do they know what they've really done? Right? They, you know, what, what, at what point did they go off the rails? Sometimes as a parent, though, we find out more information than we wanted to know. We find out that there was more than one thing that they did wrong, and that's just a bonus on parenting. You as parents will appreciate that. So Saul's reply was, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Milkmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to do the, to do the burnt offering. His response is very revealing, right? His response says a lot. Right? Does Saul at any point here really take credit? I mean, uh, take, take responsibility? That's the word I wanted to make, not credit. You may have taken credit. But he's blaming, right? Look at that, that first response, right? You know, hey, you didn't come at the set time. Right? The Philistines are at hand. You didn't come, right? It's your fault, Samuel. If you'd have been here on time is really what he's saying here. That's not going to go well. Right? 
he gave his excuse, and then he's also, now he's blaming, blame shifting. That's one of those things we do sometimes when we're caught, right? When we're confronted, we want to blame someone else, right? I think that's kind of a familiar theme. I seem to remember a problem in a garden was the same way, right? Yeah. She made me do it, the snake, right? Blame shift went all around there, right? It's a common thing that we do, but it's not taking responsibility and it's not owning up to our wrong in that. Pride has gotten in the way. There is and lies the problem. And he even tries to justify it, but he says, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering, right? He says, well, you know, I, I, knew, I knew I needed to do it now. I've, I've made a mistake, but let me, let me make it better. But, you know, I, I did do the offering. At least I... I pretended to be spiritual, is really kind of, if we put it in today's word, right? I at least did the, what I was, knew I was supposed to do, except for you were supposed to do it, but you were late. See how twisted it gets, how complicated and how wrapped up it can get, and when we're trying to justify something, instead of just owning it, keeping those short accounts, right? Just owning our own stuff in this. Samuel's not buying it, though. Samuel's, Samuel's direct. Samuel may have been from New England. I'm not sure. But he goes, you've done a foolish thing. Right? He's calling him out. He says, you, you've done a foolish thing. He didn't call him a fool, but he says, that was pretty foolish. You knew what you're supposed to do, but you didn't do it, right? You, you've done something really foolish here. You know, he's, he's now coming in as that authority, that spiritual. And he says, you've done a really foolish thing here. You've done wrong. Calls him right out on it. He says, You've not kept the command of the Lord, your God, who gave it to you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Right? So again, Samuel says, Not only are you foolish, but guess what? There's a consequence. There is always a consequence for our sin and for when we don't do things God's way. And I've mentioned this before, but Right? We get to choose the sin, but we don't get to choose the consequence. The consequences are different for each of us. And some may say, well, that's not fair. God is fair, and he's more than merciful, right? I'm thankful for sometimes I don't get the consequences that I deserve. But he shows grace at times, and at times the consequences seem hard, but they're what we need. And again, God recognizes that Saul is the leader here. He is the king, and he needs to be righteous in his decisions. And so he does get judged harshly here. Right? He says, if you had kept these commands, if you had done what God had commanded you to do, I would have established your kingdom or Israel for all time. And again, the thought here was that Saul would be king until he got to an age, and then Jonathan would take over, and the line would continue. That legacy of generation after generation. But, verse 14, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you've not kept the Lord's command. Right? So the, the consequence is he's not going to be the one that's going to carry this out. In fact, he's going to have someone else who's after God's own heart. It's interesting how David gets described as that. It's a, it's a key part of David, and again, we're not going to be studying David, but if you do, right, 
David is always referred to as a man after God's own heart. He had that intimate relationship, that heart relationship with God. Was David perfect? No, not even close, right? But we know, as we get to look through the scriptures, David is the model king, though. All the other kings get compared back to David. Not a perfect king. Those aren't the things that, not the one that was during the most peaceful time, not the the most prosperous time, but those aren't the things that mattered to God, right? What mattered to God was his heart. And it's always a heart condition that God's concerned about. And probably part of the reason that Saul gets judged so harshly here is because God knows Saul's heart. He knows that it's departing from his beginnings, right? Saul was anointed, prophesied, leading the people spiritually, got rid of the the idols. He did really well in the beginning, but he is starting to falter. His heart is starting to grow away from God, and God is judging him harshly. And that's the beginning of what we're seeing here. Verse 15 here, as we close this morning, and it says, When Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibbath and Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him, they numbered about 600. The other part of this is, is the reality of the world that he's living in as a commander. His army is shrinking, right? The men that he can really trust is back down to a small number. The people aren't following him, right? He's not seen as that spiritual leader or that king that they wanted, and now they're not rallying around him. And this is going to leave Saul in a very dark place. It's going to leave him in a, a, a tough situation. As a leader, as someone who's, who's seeking after God or should be seeking after God, it's going to leave him very vulnerable. And again, it would be pretty harsh and it would pretty be unnerving if you're king and all of a sudden Samuel says, hey, guess what? There's someone else that's going to be anointed, right? There's going to be someone up rising up that's going to overthrow you, right? That had to put some doubt in his mind. That had to be like, uh-oh, man, I'm, I'm going to lose it. And at what point? If you can put yourself back into his shoes, he's not feeling very comfortable at this point. Not only has he done wrong and he sinned against God, but also now he's losing his grip as king. Control. And certainly he knows the progression of what happens next. There's going to be someone else to take control. So he's losing that. And now Samuel's left him, physically left him, right? Samuel's gone away. The relationship is not where it used to be. Don't have to read much here between the lines, but we know the fact that he didn't stay with him and left him there alone with his army, it shows that, that Samuel saying, hey, you're in a, a spiritual place that I can't be. And their relationship starts to split as well. Now this week, if you want, and you want to read ahead, you'll see where, it, like any relationship, it kind of ebbs and flows. There, there are moments when Saul regains some of his, his senses, spiritually speaking, and comes back. It's not smooth sailing. It's not totally off the rails, but it's going to start faltering throughout some time here. And so that's where it kind of leaves us this morning. And if you come next week, like I said, we're going to pick up the story again in chapter 15. But there's a kind of an interesting battle scene in between. And so I'd encourage you, if you like those battle scenes and how God does things, even miraculously, despite the leadership, despite the people that are involved, God gives him a victory over the Philistines. And so you can read about that 
there's even a sweet part in the story um, you can look at as well. And you can give a chuckle when you find that sweet spot. So what do we get from this morning? What are some of the things that we can take away from this? Again, 15 verses, a short story, and an interesting encounter here. But what are some of the things that we can take away this morning for ourselves? Well, obviously, the, the one that, that rings out is, right, God is still faithful, even when we're unfaithful. But how about, how are you doing when you're squeezed? How are you doing when pressure comes, or when we're under stress, or we're busy? How are we doing? Are we staying in our role, but how are we responding spiritually? How are we responding spiritually? Right? Are we crying out? Are we praying? Are we being patient? All things that Saul needed to do, and he didn't. And it cost him. The other thing that we can learn is what happens when you do get caught? What happens when you do realize you have sinned? How do you respond in that situation? Do you come up with excuses? Do you blame shift? Or do you humble yourself and confess to God and then to the person that you've wronged? Again, good reminders for us all, and we all have those encounters, and we haven't had one this past week, that's great, praise the Lord, but guess what? A new week is starting, and we'll get an opportunity, most likely, maybe even today, but certainly throughout the week. And so it's a reminder for me and a reminder for you as well, right? Humble yourselves and own your own stuff. Bow with me, please. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we strive to grow in our relationship with you, as we strive to have the heart in line with you, that we too could be called a man or a woman after God's own heart. Lord, help us to realize those times when we just need to confess and ask for re repentance, Lord. And then seek out that person and ask for forgiveness. Lord, bring those things to mind. Bring us up short quickly on those, Lord, and that we be humble enough to, to go. Lord, continue to do that work in our lives. Lord, help us to, uh, to be mindful of you and the plan that you have laid out for each and every one of us. And Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for our time of worship. And, and Lord, we just ask that you be with us as we fellowship together even yet more. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.